I'm Ray Cash, a community advocate and law student on unceded Algonquin territory at the University of Ottawa. My name is Kim Pate, and I have the privilege and responsibility of being a senator in unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin Anishinaabek territory. And you're listening to Appointed. So Kim, everyone knows that post-secondary education is becoming prohibitively expensive. I feel super privileged to have the opportunity to attend law school, but unlike some of my colleagues, I have to pay for it myself. So I have multiple jobs, and sometimes I feel like I have to decide between eating what I want to eat and paying my rent. We know that instituting a national minimum guaranteed livable income would help a whole lot of Canadians, including myself, I mean, from folks living in crippling poverty and others who are trying to start a business or others who just want to pursue additional education but can't afford it. So I'm wondering, why do you think we need a guaranteed livable income in Canada? Well, we already provide resources to people. We already have some examples of guaranteed types of incomes for seniors. We have the child tax benefit. And one of the things we know is that when we provide those kinds of supports, we actually better equalize the starting point of everybody. We haven't achieved it for everybody across the country. We do provide social assistance. When I say we broadly, it's administered provinces. But nowhere in this country is social assistance sufficient for people to live without doing something for which they could be cut off social assistance otherwise penalized, even criminalized. And so we've essentially created a whole class of people who are infinitely criminalizable just because they're poor. We've also created a system that really involves policing people's incomes and morality as a way to decide whether we give them money. And so it's only deserving people are supposed to get money. That is not the basis that the initial social assistance and social safety net were established Those aren't the principles they were based on. And the research that people like Dr. Evelyn Forget has done, that Sheila Regeer, that all kinds of basic income, guaranteed livable income folks across the country and around the world are doing. Most recently I met with some folks in Belgium or from Belgium and from Finland who are doing work. The impact of the pilot that was done here in Ontario all shows that when you provide a guaranteed livable income, two things happen. No, more than two things, but two basic things. One is people are able to do things that they otherwise couldn't do because they're desperately trying to make ends meet. They can go to school, they can parent their children, they can volunteer, they can pursue other you know, aspects of their lives. And the people who, who have been naysayers to basic income have said basically we'll create a community or a country of layabouts. All the research shows just the opposite, that when people have access to an income, they want to do the work they want to do. They pursue education to better their opportunities, to expand their horizons, and they participate more in community life. Their everyday life is not just about struggling to have their basic needs met. We also know that people now who are on social assistance sometimes stay on social assistance because they have medical issues or other challenges that mean they, if they went and took a, a minimum wage job or worked somewhere where they had no benefits, 
then they, they actually couldn't afford to live because their medication is sufficient. So I think we also need to combine guaranteed livable income with things like pharmacare, dental care, as well as full health and mental health care. And I personally also think that a free education is something to which people should be entitled. Like you, I had to pay my own way through school. Till my daughter gets her uh, education, I will be the first in my family to get a university degree. And that shouldn't be the case. It should be the case that everybody has the opportunity to move ahead in education and, and strive to do the things that they, they can. And nobody, gar- nobody challenges wealthy people when they give money unconditionally to their children. People have trust accounts or inherit money. That's a money, no strings attached. And nobody judges how people, or I shouldn't say, maybe they do, but we don't hear it as a public condemnation. In fact, it's seen as a benefit that people have. So why wouldn't we want to set up a situation where people could actually live? We know that mechanization means that and artificial intelligence means that there will be fewer of the low-paying jobs in the future. And we know that uh, we are likely to see a lot more unemployed people. When I was up north, I heard elders saying, I would really like it if the young people in this community could come out on the land, learn the language, learn their culture. Instead, they have to stay in town and look for non-existent jobs because if they don't, they'll get cut off assistance. I mean, the whole reality of what we're doing makes no sense when you consider all of the costs, all of the benefits uh, versus the benefits of the current model versus a guaranteed livable income model. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between basic income, guaranteed livable income? Like I've heard all these terms being thrown around. Well, um, there are people more expert than me on this and uh, certainly, but my understanding is the basic difference is one is uh, that everybody gets a set amount, but it could be subsistence. It could be basically not helping any more than social assistance does for some. And a guaranteed livable income really means that you're getting money that, like the experiment that was being done in Ontario, allows people just a little bit more to have a bit of a leg up and out of poverty. And, and what we know is for those the already just after two years, the evidence is that people were already doing better and just and able to plan for a future. And so really it's the difference between keeping people at subsistence and allowing really an opportunity to get a leg up and out of poverty. Mm-hmm. So help me make the connection. What does incarceration have to do with a guaranteed minimum income? Well, the research that's been done in other parts of the world, as well as the research that Evelyn Forger did about the Mincom Project in Dauphin, Manitoba, showed that, uh, and certainly Hugh Siegel has done, uh, uh, former Senator Hugh Siegel has done uh, work in this area. And what the evidence shows is that if people have an opportunity to have a basic income, they tend to um, go to school, they tend to participate in community more, and we also see a reduction in the costs of health care, a reduction in the costs of the criminal justice system, lower crime rates, and a better standard of living overall. That's in, that's to the benefit of everybody, not just those who would, who would receive the basic income, but it's also to the benefit of entire communities and all of us. So people like Dr. Forget have, have said that this type of initiative could actually essentially pay for itself, not within one electoral cycle, but it wouldn't take too many for it to start to pay for itself because right now we keep throwing money in social assistance, in health care, in education, in the prison system, in the criminal justice system, in the legal system. And 
the reality is we're not shoring up the community in a way that would allow those individuals who are going in to come back out and be in a better place. In the in the health system, for instance, people who are at subsistence and can't afford their medication or can't afford to have do preventative care often end up in emergency services, which are far more costly than if you have health care provided in a more basic and universally available way within the community. One thing I hear often is we can't afford it just can't afford it and you've kind of highlighted that it could pay for itself down the road so what would you say then to people who are concerned about the cost of a program like this we are already paying million billions and billions of dollars to deal with the impact of not addressing this issue in a more preventative upfront way and so if we actually deal with the substantive inequality first and foremost we invest in something that will cost us much more down the road. And the old Perry preschool data is still applicable as far as everybody. I, they say now that the gap is even greater. And that Perry preschool um, study showed that if you invest in young people, if you invest at the early onset and provide supports for people, you actually save anywhere from 7 to $10 down the road that you would spend in trying to address needs that are created by not addressing needs early on. And so, you know, all the research shows that actually we are paying for it. We don't question it when it comes in the, f- the form of policing, guarding. And in fact, the research out of Britain is showing that the more unequal a society is, the more we are actually paying for protective type services, policing, guards, gated communities, and the like. And so it's not that we're not paying. It's just that we're paying in ways that we don't recognize as providing supports to people because we're not, but we're praying to really protect the property and the monies of those who have a whole lot versus those who have virtually none. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to speak with Sheila, speak with Avi about their ideas, um, and I think we're going to learn a lot this episode. Yeah, they're fantastic, so I look forward to hearing from them too. Great. Recently, Finland completed a two-year basic income experiment. The government randomly chose 2,000 residents to receive a no-strings-attached benefit for two years. Initial reports from the program revealed participants reported being healthier and happier than the control group. Recipients reported better well-being in every way. Here's what one participant named Tanja had to say to the BBC. I took this job offer. No moi! Tanja täällä soittaa. Hyvää päivää. It's telemarketing. I actually enjoy my job a lot. I love my co-workers. I love the office. I love the hours. And I just love to be being independent, uh, earning my own money and standing on my own two feet. Basic income has changed my life without it. I couldn't have taken a job with a little lower salary. In 2017, Ontario's Liberal government launched its own basic income project that was expected to last three years. However, the province elected a new Conservative government that has scrapped the project, citing concerns that the program did not meet the needs of Ontario's most marginalized. 
I'm not sure how that squares up since the project was aimed at supporting low-income residents. But anyways, I spoke with Sheila, who is the founding member of the Basic Income Canada Network, currently its chairperson and former executive director of the National Council of Welfare. Her 29 years of federal public service spanned frontline work, policy analysis and development, international relations and senior management with a focus on improving fairness and equality. Much of Sheila's insight comes from experiencing poverty firsthand as a young parent. Sheila spoke with us about why the Ford government's decision to scrap the basic income project was a big mistake and what we can do now. Hello. Hi, Sheila. How are you? Not too bad. So, Sheila, thank you for chatting with us today. Do you think you can tell us a bit about basic income as a concept and what your organization does? So, basic income as a concept, um, I think the easiest way to describe it is that we're, we're talking about providing direct cash transfers to people in a way that protects their dignity, allows them autonomy to make their own decisions, and that it be sufficient to meet basic needs. I always like to use practical examples uh, for Canadians especially. The way we deliver seniors' benefits in Canada is like a basic income. The way we provide benefits for families with children through the Canada Child Benefit is a form of basic income. It's that kind of unconditional cash transfer. The opposite of a basic income is social assistance. Mm. It has all kinds of conditions. It's very intrusive and very controlling of people's lives. So from what little I know, the basic income pilot was doing really well before the government announced that they were going to cancel it. And actually in Basic Income Canada's report, Signpost to Success, Uh, Also, we can link to the report in our show notes. But it noted that the pilot afforded participants the opportunity to keep jobs, start businesses, pursue education, training, etc. I'm wondering if you can speak a bit more about that. And maybe you have a story from the project of somebody or a family that you feel like really benefited from basic income that Canadians need to hear about. You're right that everything that we discovered in our report and obviously The work that we did, the survey that we did, is not as big, not as comprehensive, and the kind of thing that the full pilot results could have shown. But I think it does a great job of of talking about the experience of people on the pilot. And you're right. It allowed them to keep jobs. It allowed them to get jobs, allowed them to get promotions. A number of people... uh, When you compare the baseline survey, for example, there were quite a significant percentage of people who really didn't have great education that would allow them to get good jobs in this labor market. So not surprisingly, in our results, we find that quite a number of people opted to go back to school or get further training programs that would help them down the road. So they sacrificed a little little bit of employment now to get further ahead down the road for Mm. for the long term. I think the other huge story in there is around the kind of stress and anxiety and depression that so many people with low incomes and precarious incomes 
next meal is going to come from, if you don't know how you're going to pay the rent and manage a bill for a broken window. I mean, small things become a daily crisis for people if you don't have enough. And this includes people who are employed. I mean, we, we had a number of people who told us about working two or three jobs for years and years and still not feeling like they had any kind of a life until they got the basic income. So what we found when, again, comparing with the baseline survey showed, I think it was almost 81% of people were showing moderate to severe psychological distress wow. going into the program. And this is uh, recipients and other participants in the control group alike. So this is amongst the whole group. And then we see quite quickly in our survey responses that the extent of reduction in anxiety and depression and those sorts of problems, I mean, the improvement happens immediately and quite drastically in some cases. And the stories people provide show evidence of that. You know, they talk about um, being able to take a couple of months to get their anxiety under control and then start looking for a job. Somebody else talked about being able to concentrate better and perform better on their job, and they got a promotion. Hmm. For other people, they were able to manage a reduction in their medications. Some people got completely off of medication and found that the ability to buy better food and improve their diet improved their mental and physical health. So the, the stories are just remarkable and so common to so many Canadians. It's not that this group of people is different than people across the country who are struggling and, and need the kind of support a basic income provides. Right. I think one story that I, I personally found pretty compelling was the Seguras and how they received just, you know, $800 a month and they decided to start a, a small restaurant and it was called Fresh Fuel and the extra money that they got, that $800, helped them to relieve so much of their stress, you know, that was involved in raising their kids. Obviously, raising kids is really stressful. And just that $800 kind of put them over the edge and gave them the space, relieve some of their mental stress so that they can invest that money into their business and into other opportunities. And ultimately, you know, they sort of felt that their story was a success story because they didn't feel like they needed basic income um, after this time. That, that is a great success story. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I've eaten their food, too. It's amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but it, it highlights two other aspects, I think, that you raised from that story that are really important. One is the extent to which people were able to start or expand a business. So the, the percentages in there were actually quite high. And if you look at that, it shows the tremendous economic potential that a basic income can have mm. if people are, are unable to do that. And, and some of it is, like, quite small. Somebody talked about just being able to buy rollers and paintbrushes so he can start his own painting business. Mm. It doesn't have to be huge to make a big difference in people's lives. And then the second aspect of that is related, that even people who got two or $300 a month, so one of the misconceptions that a 
lot of people had about this pilot was that everybody was getting $17,000 a year. And they don't understand that some people had employment, they were making money, they were, they were sort of getting by, but they were still eligible to get a little bit of support. And even two or $300 a month, people said, made a huge difference to their lives. That bit of security, that knowing that if something unexpected happens, a crisis comes along, that you can manage it and it doesn't throw your life into a tailspin. So important. It's, I mean, it's so humane, <laughs> so understanding of the fact that folks go through ups and downs in their lives and we can help folks out when they land on some, you know, challenging times. So It's so humane and yeah. so economically practical. Exactly. So, I mean, all of these incredible positive outcomes from the project, why is it being cut short? And what does that ultimately mean for the findings? Oh, that's a big question. It's really hard to say. I know a lot of people worked very hard during the run-up to the last Ontario election to make sure that all of the parties gave their support to continue the pilot, and they all did. So cutting it short, the reasons that they, the reasons that the government gave, I mean, really don't stand up to scrutiny. One of the things, for example, they talked about was that it, it was just too expensive and they couldn't roll this out at the end of the pilot period. Well, that's really putting the cart before the horse because the whole purpose of this was to get research, get evidence, to get the information you needed to be able to make a longer-term decision. Right. So one of the things that this government conceivably could have done was made the same argument, but after the pilot, they could have discovered what was positive in it and that it really works. They still, at that point, might have decided that it was too expensive for Ontario to do or to do alone. And that's the situation that most jurisdictions in Canada are going to face. It would be really hard for them to do it alone. Ontario might be unique in that field. But then they would have the evidence to make an argument to the federal government and to their provincial colleagues that we need to make this a national program because Mm -hmm. it works and we all have to chip in to make it work. So that argument, it's beyond words, I think, to to think how how you would do that, to to make that unaffordability argument before you gather the information. Right. The other argument that they made was that it sort of didn't suit their ethos or something, or they wanted to use more tried and true methods. Well, the tried and true methods are social assistance, and we know that doesn't work. Right. It doesn't help people. It doesn't get them jobs. It mires them in deep poverty. It doesn't help the economy, and it's cruel and inhumane. So why it was cut short is hard to fathom. I mean, there, there are benefits in this for people across the spectrum, no matter what political persuasion you're from. There's benefits in here for everybody. I think that cost is always a big issue that comes up. And on the issue of cost, I know that there are some folks who support basic income and think that it should also replace all public services. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's definitely not what the Basic Income Canada Network advocates. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a policy statement called the Basic Income We Want, and it very 
clearly outlines that the way a basic income is going to work best is when it complements public services and things that are delivered best in that kind of public service format. There's no way that a basic income can replace a health care system or an education system. It just doesn't make sense. But what can happen is that with a basic income, if you remove a lot of pressure from the healthcare system, you're going to allow it to function better. If you're going to remove a lot of the stress and anxiety and hunger that are faced, that, that's faced by children going to school, you're going to get better educational outcomes from your education system. So they work together very well. So what's next for the Basic Income Project? So what's next is basically a continuation of everything that we in the basic income movement have been doing for a long time. Mm. We have always argued that this should be national policy. We argued that we should not be putting all our eggs in the basket of waiting for the Ontario pilot results to come in. There are lots of pilots happening around the world. We're learning lots from all sorts of different uh, places and circumstances. We also have learning from Canadian programs that are not pilots, but that are the basic incomes that I mentioned before, benefits for seniors and families with children, to see what kind of impact they're making on people's lives. We have a lot of evidence to build on, and we are for the next federal election and upcoming provincial and federal elections continuing to push for basic income as a national policy. I mean, I believe in basic income. I would like to see it happen. What can people like me do to help make basic income a prominent issue in the upcoming federal election? One of the things that we always suggest to people is, I mean, the the simple step of signing up online to Basic Income Canada Network because that then connects you to people across the country and volunteers who are doing all sorts of things. Um, there's an Ontario Basic Income Network. There's one in Manitoba, in Nova Scotia. Uh, there's sort of a sister organization in Quebec called the Remise Base Quebec. So there are organizations that people can join. We have youth movements starting. We have people focused on gathering support from CEOs and small business. And we're, you know, inviting everybody to work within the organizations they work with. Just talk to your family and friends. And we have a particular election strategy that we're hoping to roll out soon that will be online-based, encouraging people to go and meet with candidates in the next federal election, talk to them about basic income, be as helpful as possible in providing information to them, and ensuring that people attend all candidates' meetings and ask questions, and again, provide information, help build understanding and commitment to make this happen. As with many other things, we know poverty affects different people differently, depending on their race, ability, gender identity and expression, 
sexual orientation, English fluency, migration status, and record of criminalization, among other factors. Next, Kim speaks with Avi about the intersections of race, migration, and poverty. Avi Go is the clinic director of the Chinese and Southeast Asian Legal Clinic. Since her call to the bar in 1991, Avi has worked exclusively in the legal clinic system, serving the legal needs of low-income individuals and families, the majority of whom are non-English-speaking migrants and refugees. So, on this episode of Appointed, we're talking about a livable income in Canada, why we need one, what it would mean for the most marginalized in Canadian society. You work with an organization called Color of Poverty. Can you tell me a bit about it? Sure.、Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for、uh, inviting me on this podcast.、Uh, get to speak、uh, about the issue of poverty as it affected、uh, racialized communities. The Color of Poverty, Color of Change, is a network of organizations and individuals that came together in around 2006-2007 to address the issue of the growing racialization of poverty and the growing disparities facing racialized communities. Uh, meaning both the、uh, communities of color and the indigenous communities. So at that time in Ontario, the Ontario government was about to、uh, launch a poverty reduction strategy, and we were very concerned that、uh, if the government does not pay attention to the particular challenges facing、uh, communities of color and indigenous communities, then the strategy that it develops may not. Address the the poverty issues that they face, and by then,、um, you know, by you know, by 2007, there were already a lot of reports showing that there was a growing、uh, disparities between、uh, racialized groups and non-racialized groups. So, for instance, there was a report done by the Toronto United Way. Um, and it, it it looked at poverty rate and the change in poverty rate、uh, between 1981 to 2000, and during that time period, the poverty rate in Toronto for non-racialized group dropped by 28 percent. But over the same time period, poverty rate for racialized communities increased by 361 percent. That means、wow. that、um, not only is poverty not being experienced in the same way that there is a growing risk of、uh, people of color and indigenous people falling into poverty、uh, in cities like Toronto, and、mm-hmm. also、uh, Professor Grace Awegalabuzi has also produced.、Uh, well, I mean, he wrote a book called uh, uh, "Economic Apartheid in Canada," which also documents that、uh, that growing. Racial disparities, both in terms of the income level, as well as the poverty level in Canada. So certainly, it's an issue that was very alarming for people like myself,、uh, who work with different marginalized groups, but in particular、uh, communities of color. And so、mm-hmm. we formed the network in order to basically try to bring public awareness to the issue. Uh, and more importantly, to get the、uh, policy decision makers to address this issue as well. Well, thank goodness you you have come together, and I know that、um, some of the recent work by Dr. Evelyn Forget shows that if we instituted a guaranteed livable income, some of the inequalities that are experienced within Indigenous communities could be rectified within possibly even a couple of electoral cycles. 
What impact do you think a guaranteed livable income would have on racialized communities and in general and the communities you work with in particular? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that having a guaranteed income will for sure uh, help lift uh, communities out of poverty, and that will be true for you know any communities, including communities of color, immigrant communities, uh, and refugees, uh, because um, you know just as uh, racialized communities and communities of color uh, are more likely to experience poverty, immigrant and refugee population also uh, have a higher are at a higher risk of uh, experiencing poverty in Canada as well. So having a guarantee, access to guarantee uh, minimum income would certainly help um, and address like the issue at um, you know sort of at least that everybody will at will not fall below a certain standard of living. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's enough. Like you know, it's necessary but not sufficient uh, as a policy policy measure to address the issue of systemic racism facing communities of color. So for instance, what I mean by that is that one of the the key drivers of poverty is access to decent job, right? And so, Mm -hmm. of course, like having the guaranteed income will help, you know, even if you're not able to get uh, access to decent job, at least you will have uh, some kind of guaranteed income. Uh, But certainly, it doesn't address the uh, discrimination in the labor market. So, um, which shows that uh, communities of color uh, are continuing to face uh, discrimination. So, for instance, uh, many st- uh, one a couple of studies that uh, recently done by uh, Ryerson University, uh, University of Toronto, uh, show that you know people with uh, or job applicants with Asian-sounding name are at least thirty percent less likely to get uh, call for interviews. And the high, more highly educated you are, the more unlikely <laughs> you will get a uh, call for interview. So that kind of issues uh, has to do with um, the lack of employment equity within the labor market. And, you know, many employers continue to discriminate people on the basis of race, immigration status, and so on. So those kind of issues will not be addressed by guarantee income, but certainly the issue of poverty uh, can uh, be addressed, uh, you know, substantively uh, by the issue of uh, guaranteed income. So even dealing with guaranteed income doesn't mean we have to, that we can see it as in any way a panacea. We still have to deal with racism and class bias and and all the other forms of discrimination. So, Kim, you got a chance to do your first interview. How'd it go? (laughs) I'm not as good an interviewer as you are, but I'm learning. (laughs) And what do you think about this whole discussion that we're having and some of the things you've learned so far? Well, I think um, it's very clear that we have to take action at the federal level. And even though the administration of social assistance currently is a provincial jurisdiction, the, the whole issue of substantive equality and charter based equality is a federal responsibility. And the fact that people like Dr. Evelyn Forger, who did the research in the Mincom project that was done in the 1970s and continues to do this work as an economist, has talked about the fact that we may not see the impact, the very positive impact in one electoral cycle. It strikes me as very important that 
the anti-poverty caucus that exists within the uh, between the House of Commons and the Senate, as well as senators who are interested in this issue, starting with the leadership of the former Hugh Senator Hugh Siegel and Senator Eggleton, is really important to continue. And that we have a a huge potential and responsibility. There's there is huge potential, and we have a huge responsibility to actually do this work and try and figure out how we move forward, not to replace social services at all social services, but to eliminate the whole idea of policing people's incomes for morality or deservedness or that sort of thing, that we actually are spending a lot of money on on all kinds of in all kinds of ways, in emergency rooms, because people don't have adequate health care, in prisons, the legal system, because we abandon all kinds of other issues to the to the legal system when we don't have adequate mental health services and supports. And so this offers one way to start moving in a direction that allows for at least economic, greater economic equality. And then all those social services and health services can be developed to address the persistent discriminatory aspects, whether it's because of gender, because of race, uh, because of class, uh, or because of age, or whatever the level or the intersection of discrimination is and or inequality. And so I think it uh, provides us an opportunity to keep doing this work and take away that economic piece. It allows social workers to actually focus on doing the jobs that most of them go to school or go to work wanting to do, which is to support. And I think that's just one step. It's not a panacea by any stretch, but it's one step in the right direction. Yeah, so it sounds like we need some long-term planning, some visioning from the federal government and from the Senate. So I'm counting on you to get this done before before you have to leave the Senate. Oh, uh, it, it's one of the reasons I came into the Senate is... Uh, the idea that we're supposed to be working on a longer, longer-term vision of what kind of Canada we want, and I certainly don't want to, in any way, shore up those things that create and continue the inequality in this country. The whole focus will be, and you know, will continue to be on how do we actually breathe life into our charter provisions that guarantee substantive equality. Thank you, folks, for listening to another episode of appointed please rate us and subscribe to appointed wherever you get your podcasts i've noticed that a few folks have been rating us and that's really encouraging it means a lot we appreciate the feedback and we'll see you soon on the next episode yeah we appreciate the feedback even though i have no idea what that means (laughs) i mean i know what feedback means i don't know what rating means so i'll have to figure that out (laughs) 